0: Welcome to the Learn, Liken, and Lift podcast. I'm your coach, Carrie Hickenlooper. Let's get started. Episode 156 The Enemies of the Nephites. Welcome back to the Learn, Like it, and Lift podcast, and thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know I've been MIA lately. (laughs) I've had some health challenges lately that have just required my attention, but I'm here today, and so are you, so let's make the best of it. All right, thanks. Thank you again for coming. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying the war chapters in the Book of Mormon, and these chapters are chapters 43 through 63 in Alma. And I think it's fascinating that 20 chapters, 20 chapters that span actually a little over 20 years, are preserved here in the Book of Mormon. And these chapters very much detail the maneuverings and the strategies of war. And when you read it, they practically play out like a movie in your mind, and you can envision what's happening. But more importantly, they give us wisdom, not only wisdom such as when God condones war, but wisdom about the spiritual war that we're fighting. So for the next few chapters, I'm not going to go chapter by chapter rehearsing for you each and every battle, but I am going to pick out some wisdom for us to ponder upon. And I just need to say this because it's mostly for my brain so that it doesn't go into perfection mode because I totally could geek out and spend hours lifting every single nugget that I could find out of these chapters, because I do believe that God is giving us abundance here in these chapters. But what we will focus on will give you some good stuff to chew on, so that you can turn to the Spirit and receive guidance about it. So today's topic is, Who Were the Enemies of the Nephites? In primary, we keep it really simple, don't we? If we were to ask our children who were the enemies of the Nephites, they would all answer the Lamanites. And up until now, I think we could generally say the same thing. But it's from here on out that the simple answer actually gets a little more complicated. In fact, I could actually make the argument that the Lamanites were more of a pawn during this period than an enemy. I mean, they are easily acted upon. Their emotional reactivity makes them easy targets and useful means of the true enemy of the Nephites. The, the Lamanite traditions, their history, their, their past actions, and their learned responses, they all make them putty in the hands of the true enemy. The true enemy desired to bring the Nephites into bondage. And yes, the Lamanites were all game for that. Bringing the Nephites into bondage motivated the Lamanites like none other to go up and to battle against them. But ironically, the Lamanites, in doing so, exposed themselves to political and emotional bondage through their partnership with the Nephites' true enemy. So, who was this enemy? The enemy of the Nephites were the Nephites. More specifically, the dissenters of the Nephite faith and their politics. These dissenters, they didn't just leave the faith peacefully and just decide to not believe. They didn't just separate themselves respectfully and establish a system of government where they were led by a king and a class of elites like a group wanted to do. They either left with hatred and disdain, or they tried to exercise dominion over a people who desired to be free. And then, when push came to shove and contentions were too high, these dissenters ran to the Lamanites and they made alliances with them. And this wasn't because they had a strong desire to be a Lamanite, but it was because they intended to increase in power and strength in order to overthrow the Nephite nation. And they did this by stirring up the Lamanites to contend with the Nephites. These dissenters inspired the Lamanites at times to fight like dragons and to suffer terrible losses in the name of hate and power-seeking. These dissenters, namely the Zoramites and the Amalekites, but you also have that Nephite Amalekiah. And it was these dissenters who were actually more wicked and more murderous in their disposition than the Lamanites were. And the strategy was to keep the Zoramites and the Amalekites as the chief captains over the Lamanites, so that they could continually stir up and keep the anger alive in the Lamanite warriors. Because sometimes the Lamanites, they didn't want to fight the Nephites. They were afraid. And they recognized the loss that they suffered when they did fight. But the trickery and the manipulation of these dissenters, and of course, the pride of the Lamanite king, that wasn't allowed to be an option. No fighting was not an option. What's fascinating about these dissenters is the result of their dissent upon them. Once they left their faith, And the free society in which they came from, which they grew up in, once they rebelled against those principles, the Nephite dissenters entirely forgot the Lord. And they became more hardened and impenitent, wild and wicked and ferocious, more so than even the Lamanites were. Isn't that interesting? So how did the Nephites get to this point, a point when the security of their civilization is entirely threatened? And I think we need to consider first the circumstance of the Nephites. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but the circumstance or the fact is the Nephites were a covenant people, which makes them extraordinary. Because once you've covenant with God, there's no going back to where you started. The light and the knowledge that you've received and the promises that God has extended to you literally change you. For example, think of the gift of the Holy Ghost, a member of the Godhead that's promised to always be with you. You don't simply just walk away from that and then return to ignorant bliss or to your original starting point. The trajectory of your life has completely been altered through the making of a covenant with God, and then through the receivings of what he promises on his end. The Nephites, like you and I, were a part of the Abrahamic covenant. They were a covenant people and had promised to be a covenant-keeping people. And I know a quick way to remember what the Abrahamic covenant entails is to say it entails land, posterity, and deliverance. But don't let that quick reference what the covenant promises, don't let that cheapen what it promises, because it literally promises to us everything that God is willing to do in order to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. Because without this covenant, we couldn't do it on our own. And just like Abraham was promised, the Nephites were promised that the Lord would make them a great nation. That the Lord would bless those that blessed them and curse those that cursed them. That their families would be blessed and would prosper as they kept the commandments of God. And in order to do so, they would be given a land a promised land and as long as they kept the commandments of God they would prosper in the land and in as much as they didn't keep the commandments of God they would be cut off from God's presence but the lord goes further because to prosper it doesn't necessarily always mean riches it can represent multiplying in numbers but as we've studied the old testament we've seen that's not always the case But it is a clear factor of the covenant. But it also means that the Lord promises the Nephites, he promises you, that he will be your God. Hmm. What does that entail? It entails receiving his gospel, the truth of all things. It entails receiving his priesthood. God's power given to his covenant-keeping children. And again, I want you to think about the significant gift of the gift of the Holy Ghost and his companionship with us. And this, God's gospel and his priesthood being passed down through one's lineage is how the families of the earth are blessed. God will be their God and he will tutor them and empower them and protect them. That is awesome stuff. (laughs) If you really think about it, it's breathtaking what we have available, this relationship we have with him if we choose it. And with this knowledge, it brings you the full knowledge of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And all that entails a remission of your sins, a restoration of all things, including your body at resurrection and all the righteous efforts that you have made in this lifetime, all leading you to the opportunity to one day be perfect like Christ as you conquer with his help that natural man. And this knowledge, the knowledge of the plan of redemption or salvation or happiness, whatever you like to call it, that is what gives us joy. And then we have the great knowledge that deliverance isn't always until a distant future or the end of this life. Deliverance can be now. The Lord promises us and therefore the Nephites to deliver them out of their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and to lift them up at the last day. And he promised Abraham and the Nephites and us that he, the Lord God Almighty, he will be with them, that the Lord will keep them. And whither they go, the Lord will go and the Lord won't leave them until he has done all that he has spoken of to them. And in case that doesn't register to you, that's an eternal promise. The Lord isn't going away ever. He might not go away, but that doesn't mean we can't or that some of the Nephites didn't. When you understand the circumstance of the Nephites, that they were a covenant people, then you begin to see the gravity of their thoughts, their feelings, and their actions that the Nephite dissenters are experiencing. It also should put into perspective our daily thoughts, feelings, and actions as well, because where is our focus? And what degree of seriousness are we placing upon the Abrahamic covenant being at work in our life today? And if we go to the beginning of chapter 43 of Alma, the year is the 18th year of the reign of judges, and we're being thrown right back into the conflict that's happening between the Nephites and the Zoramites. We took a break for a few chapters, remember, as Alma is counseling his three sons and inserting that counsel in the middle of this conflict but now we're going back and back to the same Zoramites who gathered up all the converts and anyone who believed the words of Alma and his brethren were cast out of the city and then they went and they joined forces with the Lamanites which is exactly what the Nephites were afraid that they would do in the first place but I want us to even go back further I want us to go back a year earlier which is the 17th year of the reign of judges when Korihor was roaming through the Nephite city. And in case you forgot, this is how quickly the Nephite civilization became vulnerable once they began entertaining the teachings of an Antichrist. It's almost spooky, but it also makes great sense. Because when you remember the circumstance or the facts of the Nephite people and who and whose they are, we then can start to appreciate how moving away from that covenant or away from God, the effects that it would then have upon them. Remember, we discussed several episodes ago that an Antichrist is the antithesis of Jesus Christ. And so the Antichrist doctrine is the antithesis of joy. For true joy is found in Jesus Christ, in the redemption of others, and in the redemption of you. But the doctrine of the Antichrist, it eliminates the existence or the need For every single one of those components. And if you need to review Korahor and his teachings, go back and read Alma chapter 30. And then you can also listen to episode 150 called the Antithesis of Joy. But let me just tell you here what choosing Korahor and his doctrine, what it left the people, what it left the Nephites. It literally removed their relationship with God. It altered it their need to rely upon God for cleansing, for prosperity, for progression, and it left them merely to be defined as creatures and not children of God, let alone children of a covenant with God. So this point alone takes the relationship that God had established with his children, the land, the deliverance, the protection, and companionship with God, and it strips them of any divine power. And leaves them carrying their own burdens, blinding them to their virtue. It numbs them and it desensitizes them to higher and holier ways and the need to elevate yourself to those higher and holier ways. And with that said, there is nothing in Korahor's doctrine that would compel one to sacrifice or to self-reflect, or to develop charity towards their fellow men, without first looking to see what angle would then benefit them first, that they could benefit off of helping someone else. This doctrine makes us subservient to the natural man. And when the natural man is at the wheel in our lives, that is when our pride starts punching us in our face, causing contention and conceit competition and lack of confidence to rise up within us. And we've learned these are all fear based behaviors, which separate us not only from God, but also from our fellow men. That is the weakening effect that an antichrist doctrine has upon God's covenant children. All those thoughts and those feelings and those actions that take us away from the true power source away from the upholder of all things and actually makes us beings that are very easily acted upon. Just think how easily the Lamanites were manipulated because of their natural man steering their ship. Just think about how the antichrist world that we live in, how it teaches you to do the same thing. It even glorifies these behaviors. Now in the 18th year, You have Alma's mission to the Zoramites, who had basically adopted the teachings of Korihor. Even though he had been put to death, his doctrine continued to live on, and the Zoramites then even built upon it. And I think the most iconic token of their rebellion is these Ramiamton towers that they had built. The prayer tower that they would climb up once a week and make such a boastful prayer to God about. And again, in their prayer, diminishing him and diminishing his influence in their, in their lives by referring to him just as a great spirit. I mean, come on. The, these people knew better. This was their doctrine that they had developed in order to be able to be comfortable in their rebelliousness. Because if we can change how we see God, then we can be more comfortable in our iniquity and our separation from God. The Zoramites also believed that there never was and that there never would be a Christ. So there was no crying to God for mercy. In fact, they didn't even see a need for mercy because of their belief in being God's favored and chosen people. And there were no ordinances performed to fix their sights upon Jesus Christ so that they could center their focus on him throughout their lives. In fact, they mocked those that performed such ordinances and called them foolish And remember these are the signs also of apostasy in any covenant people when they quit observing the performances or the ordinances of the church and then when they stop their prayers of supplication or begging for forgiveness from God daily. These are the two things that are essential for the children of Israel. These two things, along with thanksgiving, is what keeps us from being deceived by the lies and the deceptions that are waiting to weaken us out there. A people who have been given the best that God has to offer cannot afford to not keep their part of the covenant that they've made with Him. And as their hearts hardened and became more and more offended by the word of God, the Nephite people became more and more weakened. If you keep that in mind, the actions of Captain Moroni and how he went about fighting this battle, how he prepared the people is going to make more sense to you when we review that in a future episode. For a covenant people who has God with them, These wars would never have had the impact that it did have upon the people. It wouldn't necessarily stop the Lamanites from coming up against them, but it would have made more of a significant impact upon the Lamanites if they tried. Does that make sense? The Book of Mormon shows proof after proof about that. Even in these chapters, when the Nephites are remembering their covenants, the Lamanites notice and they're afraid. That's the reaction that comes up in them. Now, of course, they wouldn't contribute the Nephite strength to God, but they did notice it. So who are the enemies of the Nephites? When everything boils down, it isn't the Lamanites. It's themselves. It was their quarrelings and their contentions, their murderings and their plunderings. Their idolatry and their whoredoms and their abominations, those are the things that brought war and destruction upon them because the Lord was stirring them up to remember something. It was to remember their circumstance, wasn't it? They had forgotten that their covenant with them and the covenant or the curse, depending on which end of things you find yourself, but they had forgotten the covenant of the land that they lived upon or they had stopped taking it seriously and, as prophesied, the Nephite transgression would eventually destroy them. Not yet, but their fate will be the same as the Jaredites also, who were a covenant people, brought to a covenant land. Alma prophesied to his son Helaman, telling him not to reveal this particular prophecy until it was fulfilled. And by the way, just can, can you imagine the weight of that prophecy? When did Alma receive that? Was it when he was having great anxiety for the people? Can we better appreciate now his efforts and his mourning for his people? But then for Helaman to have to record it, and then Mormon to come upon it. Anyway, before Alma departed from this life, he told his son of the revelation that he received from the spirit. That in 400 years from the time that Jesus Christ shall manifest himself unto them, the Nephites will dwindle in unbelief, and they will see wars and pestilence, famines and bloodshed, even until the people of Nephi shall become extinct. And the people will dwindle in unbelief, and they'll fall into works of darkness and lasciviousness, which I always have to look up. (laughs) But that means sexual desire that is obscene and indecent. And because they will sin against the great light and knowledge that they had received, they will be pursued by the Lamanites even until extinction. Why would 20 chapters of Alma, one third of the chapters in the book of Alma, why would so many be devoted to war and contentions? My answer is because the Book of Mormon was written for our day. The latter days that prophecy has revealed will be full of contentions and wars and all manner of wickedness, and you know that's happening. How are we to live in an Antichrist world and not be Antichrist? We need to remember our circumstance. We are the house of Israel, and we are to be covenant keepers. God is our God. He has said he will be our God. And all that that entails applies to us today. And how do we avoid the results that the Nephites experienced because of their circumstance and forgetting their circumstance? We may not physically become extinct, but we very much can become spiritually extinct. You know it and you see it happening all around. So again, How do we avoid spiritual extinction? We first stop being our own worst enemy and we remember who we are and whose we are. I don't even think we have come close to knowing in our DNA the amazingness of the promises that God has made to us. Not even close Otherwise, I think we'd be living in a whole lot less fear and moving a great number of spiritual mountains out of our way. And second, we need to keep Christ as our focus and acknowledge that He is everything. He is our joy. He is our past, our present, our future. And we keep performing those sacred ordinances that keep him fixed in the center of our lives. And we keep daily praying for his mercy and asking God for forgiveness. And we, with thanksgiving, go about our day with our shoulders squared back. That we have been prepared and that we have been equipped for these days. Isn't that amazing? Talk about living below our privileges, but boy, do I want to strive to reach up and grab hold of those privileges. And I hope you'll do that with me because do you feel that? Do you feel that boldness and that courage and that strength right now? That is the spirit of truth that's coursing through you. So now I just want you to go and do with this knowledge. If you're interested in working with me as your life coach, join me on Instagram at Carrie Hickenlooper Coaching and send me a direct message. Let's work on those relationships that are weighing you down. Let's open up a path for you to experience more confidence and joy because of them.